Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump's most brazen use of his tried-and-true delaying tactic, with Wednesday's request to the Supreme Court urging them not to get involved right now with whether or not he is immune from prosecution in Jack Smith's January the 6th case scheduled to go to trial in March of 2024. Joining us is Dennis Aftergat a former federal prosecutor and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently serves as counsel to lawyers defending American democracy and he has an article at Salon, Shocking Verdict Against Rudy Giuliani Serves as a Warning Shot for Donald Trump. Then we'll assess whether the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling against Trump barring him from the state's ballot for violating Section 3 of the 14th Amendment will help or hurt Trump and speak with Lawrence Douglas, the James Grossfeld Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College and a contributing opinion writer for The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020 and we'll discuss his article at The Guardian Americans are hoping the courts will spare them an electoral reckoning with Trump. And finally, we'll speak with Mark Hanna, a senior fellow at the Institute for Global Affairs, a nonprofit public education organization at the Eurasia Group, and the creator and host of its None of the Above podcast. Mark is a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a political partner at the Truman National Security Project. A veteran of the Kerry and Obama presidential campaigns, he teaches at New York University and we will discuss his article at the Los Angeles Times, Does Biden Benefit If Foreign Policy Dominates the 2024 Campaign? And before we begin, as the year rapidly comes to a close, many are looking for tax deductions. So I hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Dennis Aftergut, who's a former federal prosecutor and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco, who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently serves as counsel to lawyers defending American democracy, and he has an article at Salon, Shocking Verdict Against Rudy Giuliani Serves as a Warning Shot for Donald Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dennis Aftergut. Always an honor to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks, Dennis. And Donald Trump, at his most brazen, and that's really saying something, has basically asked the Supreme Court to <laughs> go slow on the January 6th case over the issue of whether he has immunity, obviously, to delay the case, uh, which is scheduled for March of uh, 2024. So are the Supreme Court going to buy such an obvious move? Uh, I, I think the signs are good that it's not going to buy them. And I'll tell you why. They expedited briefing on the issue of whether they should take the case. If they were not interested in expediting, they would not have done that. So I think the signs are good. I also think the Supreme Court has previously indicated 
that like the D.C. Court of Appeals and other courts, it has lost patience with Donald Trump. In the case where he opposed the House January 6th committee's subpoenas of White House documents, they decided that case in two months. Uh, or they, they, uh, they denied review in two months. That's a lot faster than usual. And so I think the signs are promising. But there's a backup, too. I can talk about that if you want. Well, Jack Smith, as in his filings to the court, urging them to deal with this matter as soon as possible, he brought up Watergate, just quoting him, saying, Here the stakes are at least as high, if not higher. The resolution of the question presented is pivotal to whether the former president himself will stand trial, which is scheduled to begin less than three months in the future. So he's laid it on the line. There's no doubt about what this is about. And there's also, I don't think, much doubt about what Trump's trying to do, which is either delay it up until close to the elections or, if not, after the elections. You've got that exactly right. So how is this Colorado Supreme Court decision factoring into this, given that the issue of insurrection has come up and these originalists on the Supreme Court you know, it's pretty hard for them to deny the fact that it's there as clear as day in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, yes, you've said that well. Uh, and I think that there are two ways that the Colorado decision could affect the court. First, as you suggest, it's just another arrow in the quiver of those who recognize that we are in a very dangerous situation. It gives momentum. There's a second way, though, Ian, and this is pure speculation. I suspect that they will take both cases and resolve them within a short period of one another. And I believe that it is unlikely that they will uphold the Colorado Supreme Court and take Trump off the ballots for all kinds of reasons I won't get into. But I think that what the court could see without saying so is that this gives them the opportunity to uh, rule both ways, once for Trump, once against Trump. I think at a time when the court's legitimacy is in question, when they're seen as partisan political hacks by so many, this is an opportunity they may seize to say, subtext, we're moderates. We go one way, we go the other way, we just call the law as we see it. You can buy that or not, but I think that there may be an opportunity there that they may seize. Well, President Biden has weighed in on this insurrectionist uh, ruling by the Colorado Supreme Court, saying, I think it's self-evident that Trump is an insurrectionist, he said on Wednesday. 
Whether the 14th Amendment applies, I'll let the court make that decision. But he certainly supported an insurrection. There's no question about that. None. Zero. So how do you think they can get around the obvious fact that there is this this Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? I mean, aside from what you said, which I, I accept that as a very likely outcome, because it's a, it's a political decision. And I think this is a highly political court for the worst, in the worst possible way. What about the ruling itself? Many legal scholars say it's extremely well-reasoned. Yes, it is. The, but it doesn't matter? It's well-reasoned, but it doesn't matter? Um, well, you, you, you can reason well uh, on close questions and... Uh, reasonable courts, sometimes even unreasonable courts, will differ. So if you read the dissent by Colorado Supreme Court Justice Carlos Samur, I thought it was pretty well thought out. I thought it was directly written for the Supreme Court. The court has several off-ramps where they can disagree with the majority. I think the majority in Colorado has the better of the arguments, but I don't want to say that they're slam dunks in any sense. The two most likely off-ramps that I see are one, that Section 3 of Article uh, of uh, the 14th Amendment is not self-executing. It needs either a criminal conviction of the person as an insurrectionist, or it needs Congress to implement it with legislation, neither of which have yet happened. And the second route, so that's the, it's not self-executing off-ramp route. The second one is that the procedures in, in Colorado did not provide Trump with the full panoply of due process protections that either civil litigation or criminal litigation would provide. I want to hasten to add, Ian, there was a trial that lasted, it was an evidentiary hearing that lasted a week and Trump put on witnesses and defended himself. If you read the lower court decision and if you read the, the new Supreme Court decision, it's very hard to say that due process was not given. But what Justice um, uh, Somor says is that when you have a penalty as serious as disqualifying a person for future state or federal office ad infinitum, you need the, the due process that is present in a full-blown civil or criminal trial. Last point, Ian, is that the reason I think the Colorado Supreme Court majority has the better of the argument is that this is election litigation, whether or not someone stays on the ballot. And election contests 
are always expedited. This is the argument they make, and it's true. They're always expedited. The timelines are always shortened, and the process given was very complete, if not as complete as one would have in a trial. Sure, the ballots get printed on January the 5th, so there's not a lot of time. So, but the other case before the Supreme Court, which you've written about at CNN, Trump shouldn't look for help from the January 6th case the Supreme Court accepted. And that is the Fisher versus the United States case. And if the insurrectionists have their way, since Fisher and company are are saying that they shouldn't have been convicted because of their activities on January the 6th, that would cut the legs out from under so much of Jack Smith's case against Trump, wouldn't it? And not to mention the one that we've just been talking about. uh, Not at all. Thanks for asking that question. Um, Trump's situation is very different from the insurrectionists who physically invaded the Capitol. That's what the case they accepted is about, is a physical disruption or obstruction of an official government proceeding. That's the statute. Does that qualify under the statute? Uh, because the statute, that the, the subsection of the statute is buried within a statute that's all about tampering with evidence. And the insurrectionists who've been convicted and there are like 327 of them who have been convicted under that subsection. Along with other statutes, I might add that this isn't going to have a big effect on a lot of people because they were convicted under other statutes. But as for Trump, it doesn't apply. His situation is different because he did tamper with evidence in a way that affected the integrity of the government proceedings. He submitted, he and his allies, in a conspiracy, this is the allegation, fraudulent election certificates, electoral certificates, the fake elector certificates that were designed to interfere with the integrity of the proceeding. It fits within the statute, whichever way the court applies it. I don't think it's going to, any ruling is going to give Trump any help. But the fact that two of Trump's appointed judges have ruled in favor of the insurrectionist debt, given the three people that he put on the court, that's not a harbinger, at least in the case of the of the Fisher case. Well, it's actually the two people that were on the court before Trump who are most likely to go for some overbroad application of whatever if they rule if the court rules for the insurrectionists, that would be Justices Alito and Thomas. That's a safe bet, I'd say, Dennis. Yes. I I think that it's also a safe bet that uh, Justice uh, Kavanaugh and the Chief Justice, for sure, are going to limit any holding to one like the one that I described if they rule for the insurrectionists, and they may not, but I suspect they took the case because they intend to do that. Um, and I want to say, I've read Judge, Judge Katz's 
decision. He's a Trump appointee on the Court of Appeal, the D.C. Court of Appeal in the Fisher case. And, you know, he has arguments. It's not it's not a slam dunk. I'll say again, I think the majority, he was a dissenter, has the better of the argument. But it's not an open and shut. No, but it is, again, shows you how polarized our, our um, judiciary has become. I mean, that's what I find depressing. It's yes, almost it, predictable. It, no, no uh, I won't agree with that. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in many cases, yes. But you just had a ruling from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeal that uh, oversees Atlanta and other states in the South by um, – uh, and it was uh, rendered by Chief Judge Pryor, who's a very, very conservative Republican appointee, saying that Mark Meadows cannot remove his case uh, in Atlanta, his prosecution, to federal court because his insurrectionist acts were not within the scope of his duty. Um, hmm. wow. So, so yeah. you, you have— By the way, he, Pryor was—the progressives and liberals fought hard to stop Pryor, didn't they? I, um, you probably have a better memory of that than I do, but he's very conservative. Yeah. The courts have lost patience with these insurrectionist arguments. That's another ground for my hope uh, with the Supreme Court. And I want to say, I think that they understand, especially with all the things that Trump is saying about vermin and detention camps and poisoning the blood, they understand that not only would justice delayed here be justice denied? Justice delayed would be democracy denied. Trump deserves a quick trial. And um, I, I don't mean quick in terms of length, I mean soon. And Ian, you have seen the polls that show that if Trump is convicted and Jack Smith's evidence in D.C., is overwhelming, and D.C. jury trials are very fair. They go by the evidence. You have seen the polls, most recently one day ago, that as many as 30% of Republicans say if he's convicted, he should not be nominated. And that translates to a general election. He will be nominated. But, uh, um, but it translates to a general election where other polls, including the New York Times Siena poll, on November 6th, I believe it was. It said that while Trump was leading in battleground states, he would lose 6% of his vote if he is convicted. That's why Trump is trying so hard to delay his trials. That's why justice delayed would be democracy denied. So let's give Jack Smith the final word here, just in the context of the, of how we started the conversation, which is Trump's most brazen latest move out of his tried and true playbook of delaying, where he's trying to get the Supreme Court to delay their opinion on whether or not he's immune from prosecution. Jack Smith told the justices, quote, Trump stands accused of serious crimes because the grand jury followed the facts and applied the law. 
the government seeks this court's resolution of the immunity claim so that those charges may be promptly resolved, whatever the result. Enforcing federal criminal laws that prohibit such conduct is vital to protecting our constitutional processes and democracy itself. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of whether the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling against Trump barring him from the state's ballot for violating Section 3 of the 40th Amendment will help or hurt Trump. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lawrence Douglas, who's the James Grossfeld Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College and a contributing opinion writer for The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump in the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. And he has an article at The Guardian, Americans are hoping the courts will spare them an electoral reckoning with Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lawrence Douglas. Always a pleasure to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Lawrence. And... I take it, though, in spite of the fact that many legal scholars say that the Colorado Supreme Court's uh, decision is extremely well-reasoned, that the Supreme Court will strike it down. What's your guess on that? Yeah, I think that's uh, also what I predicted. Um, It seems that the the court will exercise some kind of uh, judicial restraint and make the argument that Ultimately, a group of uh, unelected judges shouldn't be responsible for deciding uh, whether Trump is fit to be president. That's a decision that should be left to the American people, Um, notwithstanding the fact that we do have this uh, Article 3 of the 14th Amendment, which very clearly says that people who uh, took an oath and uh, of office and uh, also engage in insurrection um, should be disqualified from uh, their office. And of course, the case itself was brought by by Colorado voters, uh, many of whom were Republicans. So I guess that doesn't count. No, no, I don't think that's going to be germane at all. But you're you're absolutely right. It's not as if uh, this is a bunch of um, Democrats who were bringing these was, uh, you know, Republicans, a group of six people who uh, brought this case. Uh, The trial court basically had agreed that Trump had engaged in insurrection. Uh, Just the uh, judge in the trial court had um, somewhat um, bewilderingly uh, concluded that uh, that the 14th Amendment didn't apply to the president, uh, that this uh, Section 3 didn't apply. That seems like um, incorrect reading of uh, pretty kind of clear incorrect reading of uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. But um, it would be wonderful if the Supreme Court uh, would actually uphold the finding of the Colorado Supreme Court. Uh, But as I wrote in the piece, I really think if they were to uphold that finding, they would really have to do it unanimously. You'd need to have a 9-0 court say, this guy is disqualified and his name can be are removed from the ballot in in states um, because without that kind of unanimity, 
the decision to remove his name from ballots would create such incredible political backlash that um, I'm not sure this country really could withstand it or the electoral system could withstand it. So before we get into the, whether this will hurt or help Trump, you, you mentioned the, the ruling by the judge that said that Section 3 of the 40th Amendment doesn't apply to Trump, which is an absurd ruling because, in other words, all the insurrectionists are liable, but the guy in charge, the leader of the insurrection, is not? What kind of reasoning is that? You know, I, I honestly can't speak for the uh, the Colorado judge because, again, remember, this judge concluded that Trump had engaged in insurrection. Um, I, I think only maybe the judge was trying was bending over backwards to avoid having to remove his name uh, from the uh, primary ballot. And uh, so it's just kind of like grasping at straws because. Other than that, it really does seem like a um, a kind of inexplicable decision uh, because it seems like the we would want to make sure that the chief insurrectionists would also be uh, disqualified from uh, holding office uh, rather than just the minions. So in terms of whether or not this will hurt or help Trump, Lawrence, obviously, if he's taken off the ballot, then his supporters will be even more energized because they'll believe that this is the deep state and he will tell them, <laughs> he already is telling them, that the deep state is out to get him, it's all rigged against him, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the fact that his name is not on the ballot denies them, that's the argument, the, the choice that you would have in a democratic election. I think Trump's already talking about because he does projection, as you know, projects all of his sins onto his opponents. He's he's now basically saying, this is how dictatorship is born, right? Yes, exactly. And he does have this kind of uh, the brilliant ability to take whatever is whatever legitimate accusations are brought against him and simply to boomerang them back against his accusers and say that they are really the uh, the guilty parties of the very malfeasance that he's being accused of. Um, but a as you point out, I mean, there really are um, political hazards with removing his name. There's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, in the sense that probably the only places in which his name would be removed is in blue states, which he would be likely to lose anyway. I mean, the only way to have this uh, ruling have any kind of real bite is to have his name removed from swing states or even from, let's say, red states. But that's that's unlikely to happen. So um, so that's where we kind of really run into the the political problems associated with any kind of enforcing this ruling. Well, already the Supreme Courts in Minnesota and Michigan have turned down these efforts to have Trump taken have Trump taken off the ballots. And I don't know what other states it's before. Do you? Are there any swing states or red states? You know, I, I, I should know that. I don't know. We know that Michigan, as you mentioned, which is obviously a, a key state, um, uh, Again, they, they didn't necessarily conclude that he hadn't engaged in insurrection. They basically said that, well, this is a political question. And as a political question, we shouldn't be wading into this. Uh, we should, again, kind of leave it to the uh, American people. Um, but um, 
again, you know, one of the things I tried to write in my piece is if we think that the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is going to save us from our electoral reckoning from Trump, I think we better kind of think again. I just don't think it, it will supply that kind of silver bullet that people are looking for. Well, even though, as you point out, it's unlikely that uh, that this is going to make any difference, even if just the one state of Colorado, which is a blue state in any case, does take him off the ballot, which, again, is not likely. One of my thoughts was, well, if you get rid of Trump and taking him and either get rid of him as a, as a martyr because the deep state took him off the ballots and he's still going to be fulminating, you know, the alternative would be Nikki Haley. And I'm sure that Nikki Haley would do a lot better against Biden than Trump. So yeah. isn't Trump the most beatable candidate for, for Biden? Absolutely. And I'm sure there must be people within the Republican leadership who are aware that the Republicans, I mean, if there is going to be a train wreck, uh, Trump will certainly be the one at the front of that train. Uh, and I'm sure there are people within the Republican Party who would love to see him out of the race. And um, and again, you know, the only way to I'm not sure there's any way to kind of deal with his um, constant um, uh, insistence that the deep state is just an engage in some kind of conspiracy against them, funded, of course, by George Soros. But that's why I'm saying that if the Supreme Court in a unanimous decision uh, were able to uphold the ruling of the uh, Colorado court, that at least would give a hopefully a patina of legitimacy to those people who just uh, accept everything that Trump says. I mean, it's hard to explain how a Supreme Court that is stocked with his own appointees and has rigid ideologues on it, such as Clarence Thomas, how they would agree that if they did agree um, with the Colorado ruling, it would be hard to kind of dismiss their uh, affirmation of that ruling as simply a part of the deep state conspiracy, though I'm sure he would try, Ian. Right. Well, there, there's no way you'll get a, a unanimous ruling with, uh, right. with Clarence Thomas. I mean, in fact, there was a ruling over the um, access to his emails, wasn't there, early on in the January 6th? And Thomas was the only one on the Supreme Court that ruled in Trump's favor. Exactly. He was the only dissenter right there, right? It was an 8 to one decision with Thomas. And, of course, we know that Thomas's wife um, was a stop-the-steal uh, stop activist, um, you know, someone who was in contact with Mark Meadows and uh, really was, um, you know, sending out these apocalyptic emails about the way our we're about to lose our country to the leftists. So, yeah, I don't think we can place a whole lot of hopes in in uh, Clarence Thomas. Well, uh, nevertheless, this story, uh, this ruling by the Colorado Supreme Court, has been greeted with by a lot of liberals and progressives with a certain amount of elation. And and again, as I mentioned earlier. A lot of legal scholars say it was an extremely well-reasoned decision. So um, there seems to be a lot of wishful thinking out there. And I guess, is that why you wrote this piece, that Americans are hoping the courts will spare them an electoral reckoning with Trump, that it's better to beat the guy at the polls as opposed to in the courts? 
Yeah, I think it is better, even though, again, it's it, one could help the other. That is, it could be that the accumulation of these court decisions um, could hopefully, at least among independent, that is not among fervid MAGA supporters, but among independent voters, that it could, you know, and hopefully would uh, convince them that uh, this guy is completely unfit and really, you know, he's dangerous. And uh, and if it isn't sufficient um, to convince them, then, um, you know, in a sense, we've we've voted ourselves out of a democracy. Uh, we've kind of voted to get rid of our own democracy. We weren't uh, the responsible um, stewards of our own uh, constitutional system. Well, it is an extraordinary moment, and uh, this upcoming year, coming up soon, Lawrence, is probably the most critical year, certainly since the Civil War, in terms of uh, the fate of this country's direction of whether it still remains a democracy. And yet, as uh, Liz Cheney says, we are sleepwalking into dictatorship. And while the MAGA base is fervent, and they're going to be riled up already by this Colorado Supreme Court ruling, what's going to rile up the 60%, the silent majority, who, as, Nick, as Liz Cheney says, are sleepwalking into dictatorship? Yeah, I, w I wish I had the answer to that. That's why I hope that, you know, maybe, again, the accumulation of, uh, of judicial decisions against Trump, that is, if he is convicted of, we should also bear in mind that the Supreme Court is going to weigh in on other issues as well. They're going to weigh in on this question, or presumably they will weigh in on this question about his uh, his claim of being immunity from uh, from criminal prosecution, which is would have direct bearing on the trial that's meant to start in D.C. in March 4th about the role that he led uh, in the January 6th uh, insurrection. And they're also going to be weighing in on um, on the question about um, the obstruction of an official proceeding charge that he's uh, that's also one of the criminal charges against them. So again, if the courts voting, if the courts go against them, hopefully that will um, maybe uh, motivate the American people to uh, also turn against him, at least uh, enough to beat him in 2024. Well, Lawrence Douglas, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Always talking with you. Well, thank you, Lawrence. And again, I've been speaking with Lawrence Douglas, the James Grossfield Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College and a contributing opinion writer for The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. And he has an article at The Guardian, Americans are hoping the courts will spare them an electoral reckoning with Trump. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into whether Biden benefits or is damaged if foreign policy dominates the 2024 campaign. Well, breaking rocks in the hot sun, I fought the law and the law won. I fought the law and the law won. I miss my baby Anna, a good fun. I fought the Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Mark Hanna, who's a senior fellow at the Institute for Global Affairs, a non-profit public education organization at the Eurasia Group, and he's the creator and host of None of the Above podcast. Mark is a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a political partner at the Truman National Security Project and a veteran of the Kerry and Obama presidential campaigns, and he teaches at New York University. And he has an article at the Los Angeles Times, Does Biden Benefit If Foreign Policy Dominates the 2024 Campaign? Welcome to Background Briefing, Mark Hanna. Thank you, Ian. It's so good to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Mark. And it's often been said that partisanship ends at the shore, the assumption being that uh, foreign policy kicks in with bipartisanship. But those days are pretty clearly over, are they not? I think so. And, and it, you know, to, to some extent that, that, that politics stops at the water's edge or at the shore it was kind of a product of the geopolitical reality at the dawn of the Cold War, right? So there, there was a kind of consensus that both Democrats and Republicans had a shared mission in, in thwarting the Soviet Union and then the spread of international communism. That, that kind of unifying purpose for foreign policy doesn't really exist anymore. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that uh, foreign policy has become politicized. This is a, a topic, you know, that is important uh, to be uh, the subject of a, a robust debate. Um, but we're certainly seeing a lot of, you know, partisan polarization and, and domestic issues, and that polarization, as we've seen, carries over to, to foreign policy as well. Well, recently, the former head of Russian affairs on the National Security Council. Fiona Hill remarked that the partisanship is so toxic that in terms of Ukraine, the Republicans will not let Ukraine have a win because they think that means that Biden will have a win. Would you agree that things are that bad? Well, I do think that there is a, you know, a, a way in which both uh, pol political parties, especially Republicans now that Biden is in power, are are using foreign policy as a as a weapon uh, against their political opponents. There is a lot of principled opposition to uh, sending more American tax dollars and and, and you know supporting kind of an escalation in the war uh, in in Ukraine. And I do think that the Republicans would be penalized for criticizing Biden if their base didn't necessarily support them. And in fact, According to a recent survey of Americans and their foreign policy views that we put out uh, here at the Institute for Global Affairs, we find that uh, back in October that you know a lot of independent voters also share Republican concerns about America's overextension in, in Europe. So there is kind of a crass, cynical, political uh, you know attack on Biden by Republicans, but there's also a, a way in which conservatives uh, tend to see the world very differently. And, and America's leadership uh, and the extent of America's leadership and, and the, the limits of its uh, you know, support for Ukraine very differently than, than Democrats. And so that's, it's not a bad thing that we're having that debate. It is, it is bad when you know, the motives of each side become partisan rather than, rather than principled. Well, specifically, the effort on the part of Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, and now the Republican Senate, to tie aid to Ukraine to changing 
policies on the border and even building Trump's border wall, that clearly has a political dimension because it puts Biden in the situation where he has to make a decision. If he has to make a compromise with the Republicans, it's going to anger his left-wing base and probably diminish the Latino vote. So that seems to be a big part of the motivation, if not the main motivation. Yeah, that's right. I, 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 well, I, I also think that, you know, they see immigration as an issue on, uh, you know, on which President Biden is vulnerable, right? And so they can make hay of uh, trying to bring this back into the headlines by tying Ukraine aid to, uh, to more support for the border. They position themselves as kind of a compromise. Look, Democrats get what they want, the aid to Ukraine, and we get what we want, the more forceful enforcement of, of uh, immigration. Uh, but, I, I, you know, I, I think there is a, you know, whether this is a compromise or as Democrats will charge, well, that this is pretty cynical because, you know, you're, you're willing to support Ukraine only if it uh, benefits your pet project uh, is, is, is an open question. I, again, not to, you know, over, over hawk our survey, but this is an area that, you know, where Democrats and Republicans really do not align. Um, Republicans tend to think immigration and the threat of losing our national identity is the biggest threat that America faces. That's kind of least, you know, the least among Democrats concerns, right? And and Democrats more focused on uh, climate change and other things, and and that's ranked second second last in in Republicans. So it's we've gotten to this place right now where Democrats and Republicans. It's not that they're just coming up with different solutions to the problems that the country faces or the threats the country faces, but there's essentially very little agreement over what those threats are, what that shared reality is. So that's that's a, a something that emerged from our survey. Uh, which is at the Institute for Global Affairs dot org. If, if your listeners are interested in, in checking it out, well, of course, I think since you did the survey, former President Trump has uh, referred to immigrants as poisoning the blood of our country. So it's probably very hard for a lot of uh, Democrats and certainly progressives to agree with that kind of racist attitude, which. How much does that reflect the Republican position? I mean, clearly with 200,000 immigrants, many of them desperate, if not most of them, coming to the border per month, there is a serious problem. And you can go over the history of efforts to have a comprehensive solution. And by the way, most of those efforts uh, up until fairly recently, in fact, were stymied by the Freedom Caucus. So to some extent, the Republicans have have exacerbated this problem, and they appear to want to demagogue it rather than solve it. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think that the, you know, when Democrats hear President, uh, former President Trump making those remarks, on one hand, I think they are justifiably disgusted. Um, and, and a lot of Republicans are too, right? Uh, Senator uh, McConnell has come out and, and condemned those remarks and, and, and invoked his uh, foreign-born uh, wife, as as uh, you know, a sort of justification for his his disgust at at uh, Trump's remarks, um, and I think so. On one hand, the Democrats are really uh, 
concerned and disgusted by the xenophobia and the and the and the sort of fear and paranoia and and you know, outright racism. Let's just call it what it is of of these comments. On the other hand, they see this as a kind of extreme, like taking some what might be legitimate concerns around immigration among people on the right. And when Trump blows it up like this with this kind of ra radical race racial rhetoric. They, they see that alienating suburban voters. They see that alienating swing voters, middle of the road voters, and, and potentially a political win for them. Uh, you know, I think they're not as excited, uh, you know, as, about a, a Nikki Haley challenge to President Biden as they are. Uh, I wouldn't say they're excited about President Trump wrapping, wrapping up the nomination, but I think they see him as an easier uh, foe uh, politically. Well, indeed, and that I, I think is what's sort of emerging out of this Colorado Supreme Court ruling on the 14th Amendment. If you take Trump off the ballot, you may well help Nikki Haley, and arguably Nikki Haley could be a more dangerous opponent for Biden than Trump is. Certainly more formidable, certainly doesn't, you know, uh, you know it would would signal generational change, uh, you know, the excitement around the, the first woman president might stir up uh, female voters uh, who are independent or moderate or middle of the road voters. And I think, you know, for all the critiques that can be you know, made about Nikki Haley, she, she represents a, a kind of return to normalcy, I think, in the Republican Party that a lot of Republicans are uh, desperate for, uh, though they might not say it out loud. So let's talk about the two wars and what you think is going to be the situation in the next few months as we go into 2024, which is clearly going to be one of the most important, if not critical, election years in modern history. So it seems to be clear that Putin has made it clear that he wants to, he's not interested in any peace talks. He thinks he can win and he's playing the long game. And that's been reinforced by Peskov at the Kremlin as well. So isn't it in Putin's interest to drag this war out? And the longer he drags this war out, the more it hurts Biden and helps Trump. And the same is true of Netanyahu in terms of his situation. He has an incentive to drag out the war in Gaza simply because, at the very least, as long as he's in power, he won't be in jail. And right. if you take the logic of... Their intention is to kill or eliminate Hamas. There's about 30,000 at least Hamas fighters, and as best we can tell now, they've killed about 10,000, So, and it's taken over two months. So by those metrics, this war could go on for another four months. So do you agree with that premise that the longer these wars go on, they hurt Biden and help Trump? Well, I do think that Biden's support for both causes is hurting him in somewhat surprising and and contra contradicting ways, right? So first of all, I, I, I will say that when, when Putin says he doesn't want to negotiate, you can't take that at face value. Um, you know, at different times, Zelensky has said he won't negotiate, right? And that is uh, in some ways a negotiating position. You're saying, I am not motivated to come to the table. You're going to have to make big concessions in order to get me even to talk, right? So it it leaves it to the mature and more uninvested 
or, or, or disinterested parties to you know, try to broker these conversations, these talks that are in the interests of the United States, they're in the interests of China, they're in the interests of Europe writ large, right? So you've seen a lot of proposals for peace talks coming out of Italy and of China, and, and, and uh, it would be good for uh, the United States to you know, be as forcefully uh, advocating for diplomacy as it is uh, at least as forcefully advocating for diplomacy as it is in, in supporting one side in both of these con conflicts. But my piece in the, I, I wrote a piece for the Los Angeles Times that basically said, look, let's be straight. Americans around election time don't spend a lot of time thinking about foreign policy and national security. They they spend a lot of time thinking about uh, jobs, the economy, uh, some culture wars, things that they feel in their personal lives on a daily basis, right? And yet, 2024, when the economy is kind of chugging along, neither stellar nor nor dismal, um, and uh, you know, culture wars are, have become somewhat predictable. Like foreign policy, with this war raging in Gaza and the war in Ukraine, might actually loom somewhat large. Might actually uh, be the the policy issue, or might be a set of policy issues through which our polarized, identity-driven politics are refracted. Right. And you would think with somebody with Joe Biden's both political experience and foreign policy experience, who was a Senate chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and, and a very active vice president when it came to the global stage, you would think somebody with his experience would do well in a foreign policy election. And yet, uh, it's been reported quite quite sort of assiduously that that the his position in supporting Israel is alienating young voters, voters who are sympathetic to Palestinian suffering. A lot of progressive, the progressive wing of his Democratic Party might not be motivated uh, to come to the polls, even when he's up against a, a Trump, uh, an opponent that is Donald Trump, uh, because they feel so betrayed by his seeming uh, or his administration's uh, policies that seem to not take seriously the you know the eighteen thousand or so Palestinians who have died, and again back to our survey, the, our survey shows that when it comes to the Ukraine war, independent voters are lining up more with Republicans than with Democrats. So Democrats are about twice as likely as either Republicans or independents to support uh, America's response to the Russia-Ukraine war, and and. Independents are share Republicans concerned over our dwindling stockpiles, over uh, an extension of American troops in Europe, those kinds of things. So in a way, Biden is losing the left to the Gaza war and he, or Israel's war, and he's losing the center to the war in Ukraine. And that that puts it, it puts him and, and his reelection prospects in a hard place uh, politically. That's not to suggest, you know, the. Or, or, or indicate any kind of merit or lack of merit uh, from a policy standpoint, but the political calculus of this is, you know, it's it's a, it seems like it's a losing proposition to be as kind of enthusiastic and and unbridled in his support for both Ukraine and and Israel here. So, Mark Hanna, just in the last couple of minutes, then, the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, often says that uh, he's holding up aid to Ukraine and wants to cut funding to the IRS to balance out the $14 billion for Israel. But his argument is over Ukraine seems to have some merit, although not the way I think he sees it. Arguably, the lack of strategy over Ukraine on the part of the Biden administration 
has, to my mind, been more about them creating their own red lines. You can't have this weapon system. You can't have the F-16s. You can't have the tanks. You can't have the artillery. You can't have the missiles. And then months later, they agree. They erase their own red lines and agree to send the weapons, which for the Ukrainians consider to be too late and have given the Russians plenty of time to build up these formidable defenses that made this counteroffensive stall. So that seems to be, to my mind, a, bit, a more valid critique than whatever the critique that Mike Johnson has. What's your sense? Yeah, it is. it, it does seem like there is a, a sort of gradual escalation of support here. Uh, the the Marine veteran and, and uh, novelist Elliot Ackerman recently critiqued the Biden administration for its saying essentially that a slow yes which, you know, basically a, a gradual agreement or assent to certain weapon systems, the slow yes is sometimes worse than a, than, a, than a fast no, right? Than a clear indication of the, you know, limits of, of support. Um, I, I wrote in the Wall Street Journal four days after the invasion that, you know, too much American support, uh, you know, this was when people were calling for no-fly zones and such, too much American support right out of the gate would, you know, essentially hurt Putin as he makes his uh, as as he's his own worst enemy as he makes this big blunder on the battlefield right never interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake is what Napoleon famously said so there is I, I have been on the side of of arming Ukraine to an extent but I don't think the United States necessarily should be in the lead position of, of bankrolling and funding and arming Ukraine when European powers that have a lot of money and resources um, and have a lot more at stake in Russia's uh, bullying of its European neighbors, when those European powers have stammered and, and, and stalled and balked at some of their support. So I think the United States should be generous in its support for Ukraine, but it should also empower European allies who have the means to do so to take a lead in in uh, Europe, in the defense of Europe, right? And so that's that's been my position, I think. But I think Speaker Johnson is tapping into something here, which is that most Americans don't feel like this war in Ukraine is affecting their daily lives. And when they see tens of billions of dollars spent there, when schools are, you know, have, uh, you know, or infrastructure or other things are not as up to snuff in the United States, and there are other areas where the the United States might be investing that money, they start to wonder how much uh, people in the Biden administration are, are taking seriously their concerns. Um, and and you've started to see, it's interesting, you've started to see President Biden slowly and then kind of quietly walk back some of this language about, you know, this is a global struggle for democracy against autocracy, right, or authoritarianism. Um, because I don't think that that framing of this war is resonating. They, Americans don't see this. They see it as a power grab by Putin. They see, you know, they don't want to uh, enable or, uh, you know, reward Putin for this. They clearly see that Ukrainians are the good guys and and Russian, Russians are the bad guys here, but they don't think, they don't see the United States as having a lot of skin in the game and a lot of uh, crucially, you know, uh, vital interest in this part of the world. Um, so I think that's that makes it a difficult sell to the to swing voters uh, and conservatives, you know, come 2024. 
Well, Mark Hanna, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It's been a real pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Mark Hanna, who's a senior fellow at the Institute for Global Affairs, a non-profit public education organization at the Eurasia Group, and he's the creator and host of the None of the Above podcast and a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a political partner at the Truman National Security Project and a veteran of the Kerry and Obama presidential campaigns. He teaches at New York University and has an article at the Los Angeles Times, Does Biden Benefit if Foreign Policy Dominates the 2024 Campaign? And in closing, I would like to wish all of our listeners and supporters the happiest holidays, and we'll be back again on Christmas Eve with more background briefings and special programs through the new year. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. One more life.